Cheers, thanks. Um, we're taking a bit of a detour from our healthy human relationships uh, at the moment. We've, um, this has been the longest 10-week series <laughs> that I've ever been a part of because it's gone for at least five years now, it feels like. Um, <clears throat> but we're taking a bit of a detour of it just to take some time and to acknowledge the space that we're in, in the midst of just all the up, down and whatever of COVID and lockdown and restrictions and stopping and starting and, and all of that kind of stuff. Um, so um, tonight we're jumping off um, somewhere different and then over the next couple of weeks, uh, Dave's going to address a couple of, of topics as well uh, related to all that. The other thing too, um, I think you were distracted by the birthday singing um, to you. For anyone who is interested in, in attending our morning service um, or who does already do that, just a, a flag that as of next week, we're going to try uh, an experiment of having two identical morning services at 9 o'clock with morning tea at 10 and then a second service starting at 10.45. So if you come to the morning one, you then you come to the service, hang around for morning tea. If you're coming to the second one, you come for morning tea first and then continue on. That's part of us trying to um, fit within the restrictions and to have um, as much of the church gather as we can rather than we've been um, kind of splitting A to K and L to Z and that kind of sucks. So we're going to try, uh, try this and see how that goes. And it could go for one week, it could go for... Yep, who knows? We'll see. So just heads up about that. But I wonder, who likes roller coasters? There's a few. Oh, I'm surprised by some of the responses. I do not. Uh, like, I, I really do not like them. Um, I, don't, I don't enjoy rides in general. Like, the Ferris wheel freaks me out. So um, I am not into roller coasters at all. Um, but it actually works really well for our family because it means I can look after the bags while everyone else go, goes on it. So there, there is a, an upside to it. But I remember on our honeymoon, Mary and I went to Dreamworld and... Somewhere along the way, she expressed that it really wasn't very fun to be going on all these rides by herself. Um, so I had to kind of, I don't know, man up or, or whatever, and go on a ride with her. So I went on the Scooby-Doo roller coaster. Why are you laughing? Like, it was scary. Yeah, okay, thank you. And I, um, I hated all of it. Like, I don't think there was a bit of it that I enjoyed. But I was sitting next to my new wife, who was loving it all, and so I couldn't let her know how little I was enjoying it. So um, I worked really hard. So we were holding hands, you know, in the middle, and I worked really hard to keep this hand that was holding her hand, just to keep that just relaxed, just normal, just chilling, just, you know, romantically holding hands while my other one was, like, holding on for, for dear life. I, I, I was just trying to say that this was all cool, but I think my face still gave it away that I did not enjoy the experience. But the worst part of the Scooby-Doo ride, too, was when we started going backwards, because then I had really no idea uh, what was coming next. So, so I, hate, I hate roller coasters. By choice, I do not go on them. Uh, I don't like not knowing what's coming next, and I don't like it when I do know what's coming next, um, because I don't like what that's going to be. Uh, I don't like the sudden shifts of direction. I don't like spinning around and upside down. I don't like the swooping movement that leaves your stomach behind or, or the jarring moment that gives you whiplash. I don't like them at all. And yet, I, like all of you, have been on consistently on a roller coaster these past 
18 months or so. Uh, and especially it feels like in this last month, this last month in particular seems to have been very up and down. Like yesterday, I was enjoying my Saturday contentedly, happily pottering around the backyard, blissfully unaware of anything, when I get a text from someone who was on band in the morning to say, hey, New South Wales is locking down and I'm not going to be able to come. And so, sudden whiplash and the good feeling was gone. Earlier in the week, I'd been gearing myself up for you know, a week of supervising home learning, and as much as I hate that, I'd, I'd, I'd psyched myself up for it, I was in the headspace for it, only to have the schools reopen and my kids go back to school. And this was actually great, but the whiplash of it, the, the sudden turnaround, the sudden drop that left my stomach behind, it's absolute kind of roller coaster. I don't know if we're coming or going. I don't know when the next sudden change of direction is coming. I don't know what's coming next, and when I do, I don't like what I see. And the question that we want to consider tonight is how do we actually keep our feet firmly on the ground in such an environment, in such a context? With all the twisting and swerving, with all the ups and the downs, where and how do we find something solid on which to stand, something secure to hold on to? To change the analogy, um, Hebrews 6.19 tells us that no matter what storm we face, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. Now, sitting here, I am fully aware that your storm may have nothing to do with COVID, uh, but you are just as lost and bewildered and overcome and unsettled by other circumstances that are going on in your life. Or maybe you're sitting here and you're not in a storm at all and everything's uh, you know, uh, calm sailing. And praise God for that, but you know, don't you, that a storm will come at some point. And so whatever the cause or the timing of the storm, Scripture says we have this anchor as a hope for the soul. Sorry, we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. This hope is the reliability of God's word to us, the, the certainty of his promise to us, all of which is fulfilled in Jesus. In Jesus, we find our solid place to stand on, our secure place to hold on to. Now, those are nice words. But, and, I, and I'm sure that intellectually we agree with them. Yes, we hold on to Jesus. Yes, we stand on Jesus. He's good, all that. But how do we make them actually a reality in the lived experience of our lives? Because when we find ourselves sinking into a depression about another lockdown, when we find ourselves experiencing anxiety about things that are outside of our control, when we are feeling fatigued and overwhelmed by just all that is before us, when we're lacking any hope or joy about what the future might look like, how does Jesus actually be an anchor that actually helps us? How does this actually become reality? And so to answer that question, or, or to make movement towards that at least, tonight we're going to sit in Psalm 46. So you might want to um, get that open. We're going to work through this psalm. We're going to let the words of this psalm you know, reorient our minds and our hearts away from the situation and the circumstance that is before us and to then shift instead to the one who is... Um, our anchor. I was talking to someone last night who, who's talking about, you know, in this past season, he's, he's a farmer out in Koryong Way and about having sunk into really quite significant depression through this last 
period of time. And he said, you know, in doing that, just all that is wrong and bad just fills his vision. It's up close to his sight. And so he had to make a choice to kind of look beyond just what is right in front of him and to see a bigger picture, to look beyond the, all the bad and the negative that, that's in his face. And that's what this psalm does for us as well. It, it shifts our gaze from what's right before us and to see uh, a bigger picture. Instead of having our vision full of what overwhelms us because it's so near to our experience, Psalm 46 will help us to pull back and to be able to see more of what's going on around the picture. So, so let's dive into it. Psalm 46, if you've got it there, it starts by saying, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in trouble. When I was a kid, um, my refuge was my bed. I had bunk beds, and we had them set up at, at like right angles. And so when something was upsetting me, when I was distressed about something, I would go into, into that corner under, underneath you know, the, the thing of whatever. That would be my go-to place. And if I was really feeling it, I'd even pull down the covers from, from the top bunk and hang that down so I had my really enclosed, safe space. I'd also pretend it was a spaceship, but that's... That's a different story. Um, but, but in those times of distress and whatever, this was my go-to place. So our refuge is our safe place, the place that we go to to feel secure, to cope with, or, or to block out, even if it's just for a time, all that's going on in the world around us. It may not uh, be a place. It may be a thing. It may be a person. It may be chocolate or online shopping or, or whatever, but it's our, it's our go-to place. In our old house, one of our kids used to find the smallest space between the end of their bed and, and the bookcase, and they would squish themselves in, into there. And I think it's that the thing of feeling of the tightness around them. That was their safe place, their go-to place, until they felt okay again. Where, where do you go? What's your safe place? Where, where do you instinctively go to? So the psalmist says that God is our refuge. He is our fortress. He's our high tower, our impregnable walls, that he is our safe place, that he is our security. To change the imagery, think about that kid at the playground who has just fallen over and scraped his knees. What does he do at that moment? He cries, he gets up, and he runs to mum. And what does mum do? Mum scoops him up into her arms, embraces him, holds him close, and communicates to him her strong and her close presence, reassuring him with her words and with her being right there with him. Mum is the refuge for that kid. He's hurt himself. Life sucks. The world's against him. It's all bad. He's bleeding. He's about to die with that trickle of blood coming out of his knee, but mum makes it all okay. And as God gathers us up like chicks under his wings, it's the same image. He is our safe place. He's our secure place. He is our refuge. But not only that, the psalmist goes on to say that he is our strength. When Amon was much littler, and I was much fitter, um, I'd take him on bike rides with me. 
Um, he would be in a booster seat on the back of my bike. And at that point, I still had my big W bike from when I was a teenager myself. So I think it had 15 gears, but like only four of them worked. And, and the brakes were a bit sus too. Um, but we'd be riding up a hill. I, I remember this distinctly. Riding up a hill, I'd be working really hard. And Eamon's just sitting there in the back and he would be complaining, this is hard work, Dad. And I don't know what he found so hard because I was the one doing all the work. It was my strength that was being exercised for him. Where the prophet Isaiah writes, he says, Do you not know? Or have you not heard? But the Lord is an everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired. He will not grow weary, and his understanding no one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary and increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary, and young men stumble and fall. But those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. In other words, God is the one who sustains us. God is the one who holds us up even when we are worn out and worn down. He's the one doing the hard work. He's the one exercising his strength for us to, to help us to get up that hill. He is our refuge and strength, the psalmist says. And more than that, he is an ever-present help. You know, we ask very easily the question, where is God? Where is God in this circumstance? Whether we're talking COVID and lockdowns and, and all the disappointments and that, of that, whether we're talking a broken relationship, whether we're talking um, grief or, you know, wh whatever it is, we ask, where is God in all this? And the certain answer of Scripture is that he's right here. He's right here, with you, right now, in it. He doesn't take off when it gets hard, but He is ever-present. He is always with us. God never promises that life will be easy. In fact, it's probably fair to say the opposite, that, life, that He says that life will be hard. It won't go the way that we want it to. It won't go the way that we think that it should. But in the midst of that hardness, as well as in the midst of the good times, he just promises us his presence. That's his promise to us, as if his presence is enough. And so the question is, is it? Is it enough for you to have God's presence? Is it enough for you to have God with you, in you, and for you? That's not an easy question to answer. It requires us um, to potentially reorient our perspective of what's necessary and important and good in life. Because I doubt that any of us would say a flat out no. But we want to have God and. Yes, I want God's presence with me and good mental health. Yes, I want God's presence with me and a successful marriage and a close family, and a steady income, whatever it might be. We want God and. Is it enough if we just have God? Because his promise to us is never, 
will I leave you or forsake you? His promise is, I am with you. His promise is that God would be himself, that he would be our refuge and strength and ever-present help in time of trouble and anchor for the soul, firm and secure. So then the psalmist goes on, verse 2. says, Therefore we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam and the mountains quake with their surging. Therefore. In other words, because of who and how God is, therefore we will not fear. Though our world collapses around us, though what once seems certain has fallen into chaos, though everything seems wild and out of control and unstable. This is how I got through the experience of Scooby-Doo. The, the knowledge that I'm going to be alive on the other side of this. And so therefore, however rough it gets, it's going to be okay. This is much stronger, though, because the therefore is because of who God is. God is constant and true. Jesus is the same yesterday and today and forever. And he lives to intercede for us at the right hand of the Father. He is our refuge, our strength, and our help. And so, therefore, we will not fear because our hope is in him. And he is unshakable. He is an anchor for the soul that's firm and secure. Now, if you're reading along with this, you'll see at the end of verse 3, probably, that there's a footnote. Because the NIV doesn't include it, but there's a word here that says sila. Now, we don't know exactly what this word means, but generally it's thought to be a pause for reflection, a time for meditation and prayer about what has already come up to that point. Because these are really nice words, that God is an ever-present help in times of trouble, therefore I won't fear. These are nice words, but the reality is I'm sitting here fearing. I'm sitting here stressing. I'm sitting here worried about something. So to actually appropriate these words into our lives, to actually take them beyond our heads and into our hearts, it takes more than just knowing them and understanding them. It takes time to meditate on them, to let them sink in and to go deep. So we're going to take a sila pause, if you like. As we do do so, we're going to engage in a prayer practice uh, called hands down, hands up. Not thumbs down, no, heads down, thumbs up. Similar, but different. Wildly different. Not at all similar. As we do this, though, what what we do is we express with our bodies what we want to believe and experience with our minds and with our hearts. And the practice is simple. We start in prayer with our hands out before us, with our palms down. And with our, with our hands in such a position, we can't hold on to anything. Everything just kind of falls out. We, we let it all go. And so we'll come before God now with our hands down and to release into His care you know, all our worries and our burdens. Scripture tells us to cast your anxieties on him, for he cares for you. So, so what are you worried about? What are the circumstances that are making your world unstable? What are, what are the situations that are threatening to swamp you? Pray about them to God and release them hands down into his care. 
And then when you feel that you've been able to, to sufficiently let go, we then turn our palms upwards. And there we're ready to receive from God, to receive his peace, his strength, his presence. And as you sit there with your palms up you know, to, to receive from God, one of your anxieties that you just let go of jumps back into your heart. And, that, and that's okay. Just turn your palms down again and before God, just let it go again. Release it to then, when you're ready, turn again to receive from him. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to do this as, as in, our, in our pause. So we're going to close our eyes. And I say that because you might be someone who is constantly flipping because no sooner do you let it go and start receiving than you've grabbed it, on it, grabbed it again and so you're, you know, you're twitching. So that you don't have to be worried about that, embarrassed about other people thinking, is this person next to me you know, having some kind of fit or is they just praying really hard or, or whatever it might be. Sorry, did I cross the line? Yeah, all right, apologize. But so that you don't have to worry about being embarrassed or anything about that, uh, we're going to close our eyes. And we're going to start with our palms up and open, ready to receive from God as I just read this part of the psalm again. I'll just read it slowly for us to receive God's word. And then we'll take a minute or two in silence uh, for you to pray, hands down, releasing your worries and burdens, and then hands up uh, as you're ready. So let's, let's begin. So with our eyes closed, let's read. I'll read. So God is our refuge and strength. An ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way, and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, and the mountains quake with their surging.
psalmist continues. And in verse 4, he then writes to say that there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her. She will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The psalmist comes out of the the Selah pause with these reflections to remind us that there's not just raging storms or quaking earth, but there's also a river. There's a river whose streams make God's people glad. This is a river that brings life and nourishment and refreshment. It hints back to Psalm 1 where it says, Blessed is the one whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. Because that person is like a tree planted by streams of water, a tree that then yields its fruit in season and whose leaf does not wither. This river hints at Jesus, who talks about the spirit that he would give welling up within us to overflow, to give life. It hints at the river of life in Revelation 22, that it's clear as crystal that flows from the throne of God and of the Lamb and down through the middle of the great street of the city. Whatever the specifics of the illusion, the river expresses God's ongoing, sustaining, refreshing of his people. This is living water. Water that satisfies and that gives life, whatever is going on. So this psalm was probably written in the midst of Israel being at war with the surrounding nations. They were perhaps even at that time surrounded by an army. And so this this word comes as such an affirmation that even in the midst of such a distressing situation... God is both still present and actively sustaining his people. Nations might be in an uproar. Kingdoms might be falling. The the outcome of the battle might be in doubt and the future looks uncertain. But all God has to do, the psalmist said, is lift his voice and it's done. Over. Finished. Because he is God. He's the highest authority who is over it all. And, and so that then becomes a sustaining drink of water right there. That no matter what our governments do, no matter what a school principal does, no matter what someone in a relationship or, or whatever, no matter what goes on there, the sustaining, life-giving thing is that God is actually God over it all. God is far bigger than the circumstances that we face. And so then having made this declaration, the psalmist moves on to what's in effect a chorus to his song. Verse 7, it says, The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. Other versions say it differently. They they might call God the Lord of hosts or, or the Lord of armies. But here is Israel, outnumbered, outmanned, outresourced. They could very naturally despair. Give up, lose hope. But for the fact that the God 
of angel armies is with them. It reminds me of the story of Elisha and his servant in 2 Kings chapter 6. There, the, the king of Aram was at war with Israel. But Elisha kept, you know, as God's prophet, he kept getting word from God about what Aram's battle plans were going to be. And so Elisha would kind of get this word from God and would then speak to the king of Israel so that Israel was always able to overcome and thwart you know, the, the plans and the attacks of the enemy against them. He could warn the king of Israel and so Israel could respond appropriately. Well, well Aram eventually figured out what was going on. He thought one of his own people were, were a spy betraying him, but he found out that it's Elisha, this guy who hears from God, who is giving Israel the, the inside knowledge of what's going on. And so Aram sent horses and chariots and a strong force to surround this city where Elisha was. And then we read that the servant of the man of God, so Elisha's servant, got up early the next morning and he went out, and there was an army with horses and chariots that had surrounded the city. Oh no, my lord, what shall we do? The servant asked. Because he's going, it's me and Elisha against all these guys. We've got no hope. But don't be afraid, the prophet answered. Those who are with us are more than those who are with them. And so Elisha prayed, open his eyes, Lord, so that he may see. And then the Lord opened the servant's eyes and he looked around and he saw the hills full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. He saw the armies of God arrayed against the king of Aram. And so this is the God of hosts who is with us. He will not be defeated. He will not be overcome, even if it might look like it in the moment. The psalmist wants to remind us of this and that trusting in this God is an anchor for the soul that is firm and secure. So then we come to another Selah moment. And so let's do as we did before. Again, we'll start with our palms up as I read this part of the psalm again. And then in quiet for a minute or two, we'll pray with our palms down to release our fears and our distress, and our overwhelm, and our lostness, and our sadness, and whatever it is, we release all of that now to God. Before we turn our palms up to receive afresh the living water that is himself. So let's, let's close eyes and receive his word as we read. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, which is the holy place where the Most High dwells. God is within her, so she will not fall. God will help her at break of day. Nations are in an uproar. Kingdoms fall. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress.
In the Old Testament, the nation of Israel always seemed to be, you know, just one battle away from being absolutely overthrown. So this small nation surrounded by major empires around them. So they were always um, in conflict, always just one ruler's decision away from their defeat and overcome. And so in 2 Kings, we're in 2 Kings chapter 6 just before, now we're in chapter 18. Now we have Sennacherib, the king of Assyria, Assyria bringing his army against Israel bring his army against Jerusalem. And his commander comes before the city and he comes cocky and arrogant and proud. He comes to the wall of Jerusalem and he mocks Israel and their God. He says, he says to the, the people, um, don't listen to your king Hezekiah. Don't listen to Hezekiah when he says to you, you know what, we'll be okay because God is with us. Don't listen to Hezekiah when he says, God's going to rescue you because I'm here commanding the army of Assyria. And you can look at the nations that we have already overcome. Where are their gods? Where were their rescue? Non-existent. Didn't happen. We are too mighty. We are too powerful. The Lord will not deliver you, but we will instead overcome you. How can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand, he says. But then in the next chapter, after all his proud boasting, in the next chapter we read, that night the angel of the Lord went out and put to death 185,000 in the Assyrian camp. And when the people of Israel got up the next morning, there were all the dead bodies. So Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh and stayed there. <laughs> For all of Sennacherib's trust in his power and might, God crushed him in a night. So then the psalmist says, verse 8, Come and see what the Lord has done. Come see what the Lord has done, the desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. Now, who could have predicted this? Who could have anticipated this in advance? I mean, Israel couldn't have. We couldn't have. The odds were so overwhelmingly against us. It looked dire and hopeless, but not to God. He lifts his voice and the earth melts. Nothing is beyond him. Paul, in the book of Acts, in one of his trials, he says, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? I mean, if he's God, <laughs> why is that incredible? Why is that so hard for us to imagine or, or believe? Why would that be incredible? But, but we forget. We forget who and how God is. We become distracted. We look elsewhere. Our sight gets filled up with all that's right in front of us, and we, we lose sight of this bigger picture. And so our hope then is not in God, but our hope is in what we can strive and achieve, in how we can work situations, in the decisions that we make, in how we can figure this out and negotiate these things. 
And God then speaks into that. And he says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. God says, be still. Stop your strivings. Stop asserting yourselves. Stop making your three-month, one-year, five-year life plans. Stop seeking your will, your way, your glory. Stop doing your things to try to get around this. Stop. Be still. And know, rest in knowing that I am God. That I'm supreme above all. That I'm the greatest and the best and the first and the primary and the good and that all else is actually optional. I am God. I will be exalted. And gee, I have to say, this speaks to me in such a challenging way because surely there's something that I can be doing. If I, if I just figure things out right, it'll be okay and we'll get through this. And God says to me, stop and be still. But in that challenge, man, there's also just such an invitation to rest. To rest secure in the fact that I don't have to have it all figured out because I'm not God. And so I can rest in the fact that He is God. You know, Matthew, Mark and Luke all tell the story of Jesus and His disciples deciding to sail to the other side of a lake. And as they went, however, a serious storm came up on the lake. The waves rose and they were crashing over the sides of the boat so that it was filling with water. And they were doing everything they could. I mean, they, they were bailing out water as fast as they could. They were trimming the sails, whatever that means. They were navigating this way and then that way. And, and, and none of it was helping. I know it's a nautical term, but I just don't know what it actually means. And as more and more waves swept over the boat they were in increasing danger of sinking and, and the disciples thought of, of drowning. And in the midst of this storm that is threatening their very lives, where's Jesus? He's having a sneeze. Jesus is asleep in the back of the boat. And so the disciples wake him asking, don't you care that we drown? And I don't know what they thought waking Jesus would do. I don't know if they just thought, man, just an extra pair of hands, that maybe that's what we need. He can, he can get on a bucket and bail as well. Maybe that will be enough to keep us afloat. Now, maybe, maybe they just wanted to at least feel like they had tried literally everything that they could do. We don't know what their motivation was. But what we then read in Luke 8, having woken Jesus up, he got up and he rebuked the wind and the raging waters. The storm subsided and all was calm. Where is your faith? He asked his disciples. And in fear and amazement, they asked one another, Who is this? He commands even the winds and the water, and they obey him. Now, don't miss what's going on here. Jesus was asleep in the boat because he knew that no storm, no matter how severe, would overcome God's purposes for his life. Think about that. Think about who Jesus was and his mission. His mission was to be the Messiah, to, to come and die on a cross. What's, what's the storm going to do? He's not worried about that. 
He doesn't have to be. What's a bit of water going to do against the will of God? We could ask, what's coronavirus or home and online learning or border closures or or sudden lockdowns? What are they going to do against the will of God? Not only that, though, but Jesus then has the power and the authority to calm the storm that's going on around them. He's Lord over it. He's asleep because to him, it's literally a storm in a teacup. He's resting in the good sovereignty of God. He's asleep because he has the situation in hand, in his hand. He speaks and creation obeys. He's sovereignly power over it all. So he asked the disciples, where is your faith? He could just as readily have said to them, as he did to the wind and to the waves, to be still and to know, to know, really know that I am God. You are safe in my hand. You are safe in my presence. You can rest from your strivings because I am an anchor for your soul, firm and secure, no matter what size the storm is that is raging. And so the chorus of the psalm, again, the Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. He is the one who is with us. And again, as the psalm finishes, there is a sealer. So we'll take some time again now to hear this part of the psalm, to receive it as God's word to us, and to relinquish with our palms down all of our efforts to control and to orchestrate and to manage, to release all that, and instead to receive with palms up the rest that comes from trusting in him as God. So let's, with eyes closed, palms open to receive, let's, let's read. Come and see what the Lord has done. The desolations he has brought on the earth. He makes wars cease to the end of the earth. He breaks the bow and shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. He says, be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress.
Think of the words of Jesus when he says, Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I think this is certainly a time and a season when we are wearied and burdened, when so much is overcoming us, overwhelming us. With no end in sight, to be honest. And into that space, Jesus says, come to me. Bring your weariness, bring your burdens, and I'll give you rest. See, if we think about Israel um, and the context of this psalm, things worked out good for Israel at that time. And so this, this was a song of celebration and of, and of praise. But the truth of it is no less powerful and valid when life continues to be hard, when suffering continues unabated, when conflict continues to escalate, and when you're at the end of yourself. In fact, in those times, it's, it's especially, perhaps even more so true. Because somehow, in ways that, that I cannot fathom, when all seems dire, when all seems lost, God does something good. I mean, think about Jesus himself. He was misunderstood, plotted against by one of his friends, distressed in serious mental and emotional anguish, betrayed, stabbed in the back, not literally, but but certainly emotionally, relationally. He was abandoned, denied, falsely accused, rejected for some other criminal, flogged, beaten, wearing a crown of thorns, crucified, mocked, forsaken, dying. Could it get worse? Could the situation be that much more untenable, that much more unbearable? And yet, somehow, God worked good in that and through that. And so Hebrews says for us to consider him who endured such opposition from sinners so that we will not grow weary and, that, and lose heart. Think of Jesus again in the Garden of Gethsemane. He knew exactly what was ahead. He knew what was coming to him. And he was in absolute anguish and torment at the thought of what he would soon experience. He desperately asked that God would take that cup away from him, that he wouldn't have to go through that. And yet, even then, even there, he placed his trust in God. He was still before God, recognizing who he, he was and what his will was and, and how he would work all things out. And so he, he placed his trust in God and in his will. He didn't avoid suffering, not by any means, but he trusted God through it. And by doing so, he earned for us our eternal salvation. And so therefore, we do not lose heart. Though outwardly, we're wasting away. This is wearing on us, fatiguing us. Yet inwardly, we're being renewed day by day. For our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. And so we fix our eyes, not on what is seen, the circumstances and the challenges that are right up in front of our eyes. But we fix our eyes not on that, but instead we fix our eyes on what is unseen. Since what is seen 
you know, at its worst, it's only temporary. But what is unseen is eternal. Now, this does not come natural for us. This is not our, our instinctive perspective. But this life is not all that there is, and we need to reorient our perspective to see the larger picture beyond what's filling our sight and to remember that God is the one who is God over it all. And that He's not absent, but that He is with us and He is doing something. So when the roller coaster just keeps going, when suddenly you're now going backwards, and you have no idea what's coming. When the world falls apart and when it's chaotic and absolutely out of control. When enemies surround you. When you're stuck and you can't get out of the pit that you're in. When everything seems unstable and uncertain. The earth is shaking. The waves are crashing over you. Your boat is filling up. And when there's no human hope, Psalm 46 would remind us that God, the Lord of hosts, that he is our refuge and our strength and ever-present help in times of trouble, that he is an anchor for the soul that's firm and secure. So let's come to him now. You know, throughout this message, as we've had come to those sealer moments, we have embodied releasing and receiving in our prayers. And so now we're going to take time to embody the truth that our hope and our trust is in Jesus. We're going to do this by sharing in communion together. And we do it by, by taking bread that represents Jesus' body that was broken for us on the cross. And taking juice, symbolizing his blood that was poured out for the forgiveness of sins. And we take these things into ourselves, symbolizing, you know, symbolic of Christ in us and with us. They don't just stay external to us, but, but they, we embody Christ, if you like, as we take him into ourselves in this way. There's also here um, little tokens, key rings, if you want to add them to that, of an anchor. And just as something tangible, as a reminder that you of something, you know, if you put this on your keys, you, you use your keys every day, and every day, every time you start that car, unlock that door, go to that, that place, and, and use that, the reminder that we have an anchor for a soul that is firm and secure. So I invite you to take one of, one of these as well. So what we're going to do, um, we're going to listen to a song, then we're going to sing a, a couple of songs. And anywhere in those three songs, invite you to come forward. Come just practically come down the center aisle, grab bread, bread, grab the cup, grab a token, and go back the side aisles to your seats. And as you're ready, then take and eat and take and drink. And remember the one who is our hope, our anchor. So let's, let's pray as we prepare to do this. God, at this time, we want to respond to your invitation, the invitation issued by Jesus to come to me, 
all who are wearied and burdened, to receive his rest. God, we want to put that to action in our bodies as an expression of what's in our hearts and in our minds, or perhaps as something to help us to get these things into our hearts and to our minds. We want to come to him now in communion. To take bread, remember what he's done for us, to take cup, symbolic of the forgiveness of sin, and to take, in effect, Christ into ourselves again, to remember his presence with us in all things. We want to come to Jesus as our hope, as our anchor, as the one who remains the same yesterday and today and forever and so is unshakable and immovable. The one who is the stable place for us to stand, the, the secure thing for us to hold on to in all that life throws at us. May we experience a fresh... May we experience... In, in fact, uh, not just in knowing nice stuff about you, but when you experience, in fact, the, this reality that we have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure, and that hope is Jesus and his love for us, his presence with us, his strength over us, the peace that he gives us, the relationship, the, the forgiveness of our sins, the relationship with you that he gives us, and his sovereign control over all, so that even in the darkest of times, like when he was dying on that cross, yet you are working even then and are doing something good, something marvelous, something that we could perhaps never predict or anticipate, and yet you do it. And so we pray this and we come to Jesus then now. Amen. So as the song plays, as we sing the last couple of songs, as you're ready, come and take and eat and drink.